All right, well, welcome everyone. It's so good to see you. My name is Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so excited that you are here with us today. Um, we are now in the third week in our series over uh, the man Elisha, in our third week in the series that I'm calling Seeing the Unseen. If you missed any of the first two messages, that's okay. We have the audio and video up on our website, stapletonchurch.com. You can find it under the media tab. Um, and, and today, I think we're in for a great message because we're going to talk about how we can see the things that God sees, because often we don't. Often we don't, and I really been hoping that through this whole series we're going to be able to do that, but especially in this message today. Because we have doubts. We don't believe sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to think that God can do what we ask Him to do. Right? Let me ask a question. I'm going to check who's honest in here. Who in here has ever asked God to do something, prayed, and in the back of your head thinking, there's no way God will ever do that? Okay, everybody else is lying. <laughs> no, it, it's true. I've done that. I've done that recently that I've prayed for things and, and I wouldn't maybe say it. Sometimes I do, but, but I just think, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's impossible. And I think we have those things in our life that we're just saying, no way God could do that. And when we get in tough situations in our life, like the situation you heard Chelsea share about, when we get in those situations, we think, I don't know, there's no way out. It's too difficult, too desperate. This is impossible. And even if we pray, even if we believe in God, we don't know if he can actually come through. We do that. So there's a lot of people in here who are what's often termed practical atheists. I fall into that sometimes too. Practical, and maybe there's some real atheists in here, and I'm sorry. But there, there may be some atheists in here, but we're, a lot of us are practical atheists. Because yes, we believe that there's this God that's out there, but does he really help? Can he really help? Or would he really help me? We think, oh, maybe he could do that, but he doesn't really do that anymore. So we live our life like an atheist, as if God wasn't real, as if he wasn't big. And today I hope through this message that you will be challenged to have more faith in God. And you can begin to see the impossible things the way he sees them. So... In this message, we're going to jump into 2 Kings chapter 3. You can follow along in your Bible or uh, up here on the screen or on a smartphone, whatever you have. And in this, we're going to jump into a story in ancient Israel. So I want to tell you a little bit where we are because it's really confusing even for people that have grown up in church, gone to Sunday school their whole life, to know how the Bible fits together, right? So I just want you to see this timeline so you get a little bit better idea of where we are in the Bible. So the Bible, of course, in Genesis starts out in the time of patriarchs, when God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through their family, God was going to bless the whole world. Well, then those patriarchs, of course, went into Egypt. Things were very good at first, but then they were put into slavery, and for a period of almost 400, 400 plus years, they were in slavery. And finally, they exited Egypt in the Exodus, and that's what that book of Exodus is about, and they entered um, into the wandering for a little while, and then finally into the promised land, and where the book of Judges came. Because in the time of the Judges, there's a book of the Bible called Judges, these uh, 12 tribes of Israel weren't united. They're basically 12 different clans, and every once in a while they'd get together for, to fight a war or something. Well, at the end of that time, there was these kings that came together and brought these tribes, these clans together. First was Saul, then David, then Solomon. And that was the period of the united kingdom. But that didn't last very long. Right after Solomon died... After three kings, the nation was divided. And the, the northern ten tribes formed a nation called Israel. And the southern two tribes formed a nation called Judah. 
So they were divided then for a very long time. And that's where we're going to pick up our story in this divided kingdom under a king by the name of Joram. By Joram in 853 B.C., of course. Now you're like, oh yeah, 853 B.C. But then um, after that, of course, both kingdoms got taken over by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians sent into exile before they returned back to Israel. And then about 400 years after that is when Jesus came. So now you kind of have a good uh, overview of the Bible and we're jumping into the middle of that into the divided kingdom. And we are introduced to this king named Joram. Now, Joram is one of the sons of a king named Ahab. We were introduced into Ahab last fall when we looked at who Elijah was. And Ahab, the Bible says, was one of the most evil kings to ever live. That's a great title, isn't it? You know, Not Catherine the Great, no. Ahab, the worst king to ever live. He was really bad, and that was a hard time. He, did, he hated God, and he hated all of God's people, and killed a lot of them. And then eventually he died. And then we were introduced in 2 Kings chapter 1 to his son Ahaziah, who was just as bad as his father, but he just didn't last very long because he fell from the second floor and paralyzed himself. And, and he wanted God to heal him, but he didn't want to repent of his sins, so he died. It was a very short reign for Ahaziah. Well, now one of Ahaziah's brothers, or half-brothers, we're not told, by the name of Joram or Jehoram in some versions, is now king. And it says that he wasn't quite as bad as his father. He didn't worship Baal, this false god that uh, Ahab did, but he was still a pretty bad dude. And he is now king. And he wants more money. So I want to show you this next slide. This is a map of ancient Middle East. So we have Israel in the north. This is the northern ten tribes. This is the divided kingdom, right? Their capital is Samaria. This is where Joram reigns. And in the south, of course, is Judah. And then there's this small, tiny kingdom named Edom, which was probably subservient to Judah. And then there's Moab to the east. This is not the Moab where my wife was born. That's Moab, Utah. Okay, this is Moab, which is present-day Jordan today. So in Moab, that nation had been conquered by King David hundreds of years before this. And they were a tributary state. So they would give money, they would send sheep and wool, which was a pretty precious commodity back in the day, to Israel. Well, when Ahab died, Moab was like, eh, we don't want to do this anymore. So the king at the time, a guy named Misha, decided we're going to rebel and we're no longer going to provide tributes. So this is a big economic thing. Well, they've been relying on this for years and generations to build up their economy. So the king in Israel, Joram, was pretty upset about this. So he decided to go back to war with Moab. What's really cool, I love whenever this happens, is archaeologists have uncovered uh, this big black stone that's called Misha's stone. Misha, the king of Moab. And he wrote on it about how he had rebelled from Israel and gained his freedom and that he had built up all these cities and all these fortresses. So, in, in case you're wondering, yes, everything in the Bible is true. And now things like this prove that it's true. We have another nation talking about this situation. So this king Misha is rebelling in Moab. And Joram in Israel decides it's time to go to war. So he calls up his buddies in Judah, a guy by the name of Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, we're not told his name. He says, would you guys join with me to go to war with Moab? And they all say, let's do it. We're going to defeat Moab. So what would have been the obvious route would have been to go from Samaria down into Moab. That's the most direct route. That's where the battles had been fought before. But that Misha, as he told in his stone, built a whole bunch of fortresses there in the north. And these have been excavated. 
We see them. So this was a highly guarded area. So these three nations united together under one army have decided instead we're going to go from the south. So they come way down to the south to attack Moab where they're weakest because they want to win. And they have a bigger army, these three nations combined. So this may have been a great military strategy, but here's the problem. And you'll know this if you've ever studied wars, is one of the biggest things is not how many soldiers you have, but can you get supplies to those soldiers? It's a big problem in war. How do we get all the supplies? How do we get the food? How do we get the water to the front lines? It's a big deal. And these guys have now gone an extra seven days to the south. This little lake right here, 50 miles. So they're going way out of the way to attack from the south. And the problem is, these huge army, these three nations come together, have been marching for seven days, and they are now in the desert of Edom, here south of this big old lake. And they run out of water. There is no more water. There's nothing for the soldiers, nothing for the animals to drink. They are thirsty, and they're in the middle of the desert. Now, if you're thinking, well, Matt, there's a lake there. Why don't they just drink from the lake? You don't know what lake this is. Do you know what lake that is? The Dead Sea, that's right. Do you know why it's called the Dead Sea? Well, it could kill people. Yeah, because there's so much salt in it that nothing can live. There are no fish, there are no plants. In fact, it has a salinization content, more salt and minerals, 6.8 times out of the ocean. They say you can't even drown in this lake because you go in there and you just float to the surface. There's so much salt. You can't drink the water. And in fact, this area, it's called the Desert of Edom in the Bible, is often called the Valley of Salt. Because there's so much salt, desert, there's no water there. And that's where they are. Not good planning, I guess. Not good planning. And there they are, thirsty, desperate, and it's looking like they're going to lose this war before they even fought once. That's a pretty desperate situation, isn't it? That's where Joram, Jehoshaphat, and the other king are right there. All their soldiers, they're like, we're going to lose before we even started. This is desperate. This is one of those scenarios where it's like, I don't know if I can afford to take care of my child. It's one of those situations where like, I don't think I can get through this. I don't see any way out. It's an impossible situation. It's desperate. And we get those places in our lives and it's very difficult. What do you do? How do you handle it? So that's where we pick up this story in verse 10. Here's Joram. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? What I think is so interesting about his is he probably did believe that there is this God. He says, why did God bring us all together just to put us into this mess? He's blaming God for this whole situation, right? He's desperate and he's angry at God. So he would be what I would say is a practical atheist, right? He believes there's God, but is angry at him, doesn't think God can help them in this situation, and he's desperate. It's an impossible situation. Thankfully, there's another king there, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was from Judah. And he says, I know what we should do. We should go talk to God about it. <laughs> we should talk to God about it. And he says, you know what we need is a prophet, someone that can speak to God for us. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. I wish I had more details, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But Elisha just happens to be there. Elisha was this new prophet for the nation, just called, given the shawl of Elijah. And he's the new guy. And he just happens to be along. I think maybe he was just waiting. He's like, what are they going to say? And all of a sudden, no, oh, there's Elisha. He just steps right out, right? There's Elisha. And he says, I, 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 can, I can talk to you. I'm a prophet. I can talk to God for you. 
I can talk to God for you. But he comes, and this is what he says in verse 13. It says, Elisha said to the king of Israel, to Joram, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Remember, because Ahab, his father, had worshipped Baal, this false god. There's prophets from them. Why don't you go talk to them? You don't believe in this true God. You're a practical atheist. But no, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Once again, blaming God. There's no faith in this, right? He's just saying, God got us into this mess. And don't we do that? Don't we blame God when we're in those desperate situations? He led me here. He told me to move to Colorado. And now look at this. It's a mess. Sorry, that that happens, right? Why did God put me into this situation? Why did He put me in this relationship only for everything to just fall apart? How could He put me in this position and I just got this brand new job, I'm excited, and now they're going to let me go? We get mad at God, don't we? We're angry. It's impossible. He could not help with this. We're accusing Him. But then Elisha in verse 14 says this. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. I love that. He doesn't have any faith. He knows it. Elisha knows that this Joram is not. He's a practical atheist, right? Doesn't believe in God. But he's like, ah, but Jehoshaphat's here. He's a good guy. You're lucky. So he says this. He says, okay, now I want you to go get me a harpist. I think this is another one of those interesting things. We need some music. They didn't, you know, they didn't have Bluetooth back then in their iPhones. So he says, well, I need a harpist. So he gets the harpist and the harpist starts playing. And this is a really interesting thing because God often speaks to us through music. It's just a way that he works. That's why we sing songs every week. We have a great band that comes and leads you um, because we want you to connect with God through music. And that's what happens. This guy's playing the harp and Elijah says, okay, God has something to tell you. It says in verse 16, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. As if that was enough. He's like, there's going to be enough water for all these armies, these three armies that have come together. There's going to be enough water for all of your animals, even though it's in this desert valley of salt where there is no water. And I'm going to give you victory. That wasn't enough. Why? This is an easy thing for God. God laughs. He laughs. Now I can just imagine Joram and some of the other, um, maybe the other kings there, maybe Jehoshaphat would believe, we're not told much about him in this story, but everybody else would have thought that's impossible. We've been out here for seven days. There is no water. Do you know how much precipitation this part of the world gets? Less than two inches a year. So they're thinking, even if there were clouds, there's not going to be enough water for us. And if God is going to do it without clouds, that's not going to happen. This is impossible. That's what we all say in those situations. There's no way out. There's no way can come out well. It's going to turn out badly. This is an impossible situation. Even if we believe in God, hmm, I don't know if he can come through. We become practical atheists. That's where Joram is. So they go to sleep. And when they wake up in the morning, something had happened. What had happened was, all of a sudden, the valley was filled with water. (laughs) Isn't that what God said he was going to do? It's filled with water. It just came from the south somewhere. 
There was no clouds in the sky, no thunder, no rain, but all of a sudden the entire valley is filled with water. But on top of that, something amazing happened. Because the Moabites, who were guarding and they were in their defensive encampments, waiting along the southern edge of Moab, they looked out, and when they saw this water, the sun was just beginning to peek out. And the sun reflected on the water, and it looked red, like blood. They saw this, and they thought, those three nations must have fought against each other. They must have killed each other, and their blood is now running into the valley, because there's no water in that valley. It's a desert. So the Moabites get excited and leave their defensive positions, and they run as fast as they can so they can loot and pillage these camps. And when they get there, what do they find? These three armies ready to fight. And it says that they slaughtered all of the Moabites. And they beat them and then they chased them up north and they took fort after fort, won every single battle. The war was theirs. They won. God's sitting back saying, it's an easy thing. Easy. What's amazing about this story is something that we can experience in our lives is there's these situations that seem completely impossible. There's no way God can come through. Even if we believe in God, no, no, no way that he could do it in my life. In this situation, it's too far gone and God laughs. I really think that. Whenever I say, oh, that's impossible, I think God laughs. I really do. And, and this is what God is wanting us to see. He wants us to have the eyes that he has. Because what we see as impossible, it's an easy thing for God. And that's what I want you to get today. What we see as impossible is an easy thing for God. That's what he said. You can almost hear God laughing in that. That's an easy thing. I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to give you victory too. You just need water. I got more than that. It's easy for me. Now this is like, I remember I had a friend a few years ago, actually back in college, and I was messing around with one of those Rubik's Cubes. You ever tried those? I'm terrible at that thing. I can't even get like one side together before I'm frustrated and give it up. He took that thing. I'd been working on it for like an hour. He took it in less than a minute, had it fixed. He's like, that's easy. I had another time that I was building this website and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I was really struggling trying to get code right. I know nothing about code. And I was messing around for days trying to fix this problem. I called up my buddy. He's like, oh, that's easy. Boom, fixed in like a few minutes. Have you ever had that situation where someone's just like, oh, that's easy. I know how to do that. Well, God does that in our lives. He says, you think it's hard? You think it's impossible? No, it's an easy thing for me. And that's why I want us to have the eyes that God has, to see the unseen, to see that even though it seems impossible to us, to God, it's easy. I remember uh, just about this time last year, Melissa and I were talking about possibly moving to Denver because I was about to come out here for a candidating week to meet you guys and you guys were going to vote on me as the pastor. And... We in Nebraska, while we were there for about six years, we lived in what's called a parsonage. The church owned our house. And it was very close to the church, just down the street. And Melissa said, you know, if we're going to go anywhere, I want us to live that close to the church. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. That's impossible. <laughs> you don't know Denver. Denver, there's no way we could find anything that close. So we come here and we had a whole bunch of places we were going to check out even before we got here. And we went and visited them. Things weren't coming through and they were falling through. Finally, we saw this place. And we said, okay, this will work. Let's sign the lease. So we did. And then we left and went back, drove back to Nebraska. And we got back. We looked, I was on Google Maps and I was checking and, and Melissa said, hey, you know, let's just see where this, how far this new place is from the church. So I plugged it in. 0.3 miles. Okay, great. Awesome. And she said, well, what, how far is our place right now? 
plugged it in Nebraska. Guess how far it was from the church there? 0.3 miles. When I said it was impossible, God laughed. And that's what he does. He says, it's an easy thing. That's an easy thing for me. God comes through that way. God comes through that way. In Jeremiah 32, 17, we have uh, the, the right way we're supposed to think about God. Jeremiah says, Eternal Lord, with your outstretched arm and your enormous power, you created the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too difficult for you. That's the way we should think about it. If God created everything, if he breathed life in, into us, the situation we're going through is an easy thing. It's, it's not too difficult for God. He's the God who can do what we see as impossible. It's an easy thing for him. Philip Yancey, the Christian uh, author, took a trip to China some years ago. And before he went, he was talking to a missionary that had been stationed there way back in the 40s. Now, if you know anything about China at the time, in, in 1950, when the communist regime took over, they kicked out all foreigners. They kicked out every single Western missionary. So this missionary had been kicked out of there. And at the time, there was about 700,000 estimated Christians in China. So Philip Yancey was talking to this missionary, and the missionary said, you know, I just feel so bad to all the people we left behind there, all these Christians, so young and new. He said, there's, there's no one there that could teach them. There was no one there to, to help them publish books. They didn't have printing presses. There was no one to run their orphanages or their clinics. They had nothing, no resources other than the Holy Spirit. So Philip Yancey then went on his trip, and if you know anything about what's going on in China right now, he found out that there's now an estimated 200 million Christians in China. And Philip Yancey says, well, I guess the Holy Spirit was enough. <laughs> God doesn't need our resources. He doesn't need us. It seems impossible or too difficult, and God laughs. What we see as impossible is an easy thing for God. It's an easy thing for God. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, Matt, in this story, it just seems like it's maybe a natural thing that happened. Maybe a dam burst to the south and maybe water came in and maybe it was just, you know, the sun coming up and it tricked these soldiers. Hey, maybe it had nothing to do with God. Maybe it was just a coincidence. Well, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was something completely natural. We're not told if this was a, a complete miracle, but we are told that God predicted it was going to happen and then it happened. Pretty bizarre coincidence right there. And that's often how God works in our lives. We don't see these visible miracles sometimes, but then there's scenarios brought together. We talk to that person at the perfect time, and exactly what we needed to happen happened. And you can say it's a coincidence, or we can call it providence like it is. Because God works in situations like that. He works behind the scenes directing things. And we come through. And we're like, wow, I thought that was impossible. Or if you're here and you're like, well, Matt, I didn't get my prayer answered. God didn't come through. Or he hasn't come through yet. I can't tell you why that happened. Somebody just asked me the other day and, and they're like, they had their miracle happen and they were like, well, why didn't it happen to this other person? And those are these, these are the questions maybe we'll never have an answer to. We'll never know why that happened or the hard thing happened. But what we can take courage in and we can trust God through, is that he knows what's going on. And here's what I also want you to see in this story. These guys were just asking for water. They were thirsty. They were desperate. They just needed water to get through the next day so they wouldn't die. And God gave them water, but he also gave them victory, didn't he? 
And I think from this story, we can see that God has an even bigger and better plan than what we have. So God might not answer our prayer exactly like we want. He might even say, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen in this situation. But we can trust that he has an even greater victory for us. He has an even greater victory for us. You know, Jesus was talking to some of his followers and they were talking about salvation and Jesus said something really interesting. He said, you're talking about salvation, you can't do it. But in Mark, he said this. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. I love that. He said, yeah, yeah, you can't do this on your own. You're not going to be able to figure it out. God, he sees that, yeah, it's impossible with men, with women, with humankind. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. That's what Jesus said. Can you guys say this with me? With men, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. That's what Jesus wanted to say. And they were talking about salvation right there. Jesus was saying, you cannot save yourself. You've never done good enough. In fact, you've done so many bad things, God has rejected you and you should go to hell. But then Jesus said, yeah, my God makes the impossible possible. And then Jesus went and died on the cross, taking our punishment, taking all the wrath and hell that we deserved upon himself. And if we believe in him, we can be forgiven and have eternal life. God, in Jesus Christ on the cross, made the impossible possible. And that's an amazing thing. Even in this story, Joram didn't have the faith, did he? Even at the end, he was accusing God. But he had a friend, Jehoshaphat, who did believe. And that was good enough for God. And in the same way, God sees us that we're not good enough. We don't have enough faith. We're practical atheists. But because of Jesus Christ and his perfection and what he did for you on the cross, it's enough. He makes the impossible possible for you. And that's an amazing thing. So I want to leave you with a challenge today. I want to leave you with a challenge. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we read, Glory to God who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by his power at work within us. God says, it's an easy thing. I can do more than you ask. So I want us to ask God for something big. Each one of us may have a difficulty right now, an impossible situation that we can't see a way through. Ask God for help with that. Maybe it's something bigger that you've been praying for for a long time. And I want you to write it down today. We're closing up our 21 days of prayer with our feast and celebration today after this service, which I hope you guys stay for. And hopefully you'll continue to pray, but I want you to ask God for something big today. Teresa of Avila once wrote, you pay God a compliment by asking great things of him. I think that's true. Because we're acknowledging that it is true that that's an easy thing for God. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, used to ask his um, people that he was teaching, he said, what's the biggest thing you've asked God for this week? So I want to throw that on you guys. What's the biggest thing you're asking God for today, this week? What's the big thing you're going to ask? The impossible, the thing, the thing that seems too difficult. A few years ago, I was challenged to pray this way by, by a Bible teacher, and he said that for years, in the 80s, he had a prayer like this. Because there was another country that kicked out all foreign missionaries, the Soviet Union. And his prayer was that the Soviet Union would fall. And at the time, it seemed impossible. They were a huge mega power. They were a superpower. But he was praying that the Soviet Union would fall. And guess what happened? We all know now it fell. And he's like, God answered that impossible prayer. He's going to answer your prayers too. 
Maybe not the exact way we see or fit or, or in the right time that we want, but we should ask God for big things. We should ask Him for the impossible things. Because He says that's a small thing for me. It's a small thing for me. So we're going to close now um, and, and we're going to have a time of prayer and, and a time of worship. We've had a great prayer team that's put together these 21 days of prayer and they've been awesome. So we're going to have Fran and Gerardo. Gerardo leads up our prayer team. Fran's going to lead our prayer time as we finish. So you've written down this impossible prayer and I want you to pray it. We're going to finish with the time of worship and also just like we've done all month, myself and some of the elders in the prayer team are going to be in the back. If you need prayer for something today, if you're in an impossible situation, we want to pray with you. Okay? But I want us to be praying boldly and I hope that you are challenged in your faith today to maybe believe God's for something bigger. Uh, John Newton wrote a hymn and I just want to read you one of the stanzas as we close. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. God, I just pray that you'd hear us right now. You are a big God. We have too small a view of you. We're practical atheists a lot. And I pray that you would speak to us and give us faith to believe you for big things, to ask you for big things, and would you come through because you say it's a small thing for me. It's a small thing. Amen.